Welcome back to Weekly Specials. I'm your host, Will Gadara, and I'm thrilled to have you listening with us here. You know, it's been interesting. Over the past couple months, I've talked to so many of my friends who run restaurants across America who just really miss serving guests. We talk about how when you start to take something for granted when it's in front of you all the time, you don't, you just don't appreciate it as much. In the restaurant business, oftentimes after a certain number of years working in dining rooms, people are just looking forward to not having to work on the floor anymore. That's a part of how it works. But recently, people who worked for a long time and worked their way up through dining rooms and to the point where they're director of operations or owners of restaurant groups, the thing they can't wait to do more than anything else is get back to working on the floor, get back to serving people. Those moments when you get to see the look on someone's face when you do something extraordinary for them, when you go off book and make them laugh, when you see a couple at a table and you recognize that you're there for one of those moments where they're connecting in a way that perhaps they haven't connected in a really long time. That's the reason we all started doing this in the first place. And it's the thing I see people missing now more than ever. But I was talking to someone the other day and they reminded me that just because we are not able to serve our guests in the way that we were once used to, at least we're not able to do it now as much as we're normally used to doing it. It doesn't mean we can't find other ways to serve people. And he challenged me to just think about someone that I know, even if I don't know them that well. And just do something random and kind for them. Send someone a small gift, call them to check in on them. Even if people aren't coming into our dining rooms at work, it's no reason that we can't find opportunities every single day to serve. And I loved that. And I wanted to share it with you. We have a great show today. I'm going to jump right in. Welcome back to Weekly Specials. It's the Weekly Specials. Weekly Specials. Good news coming at you. The Weekly Specials. Weekly Specials. Good news coming at you. So my guest this week, well, he doesn't really need much in the way of introductions. I mean, he is a seven-time James Beard award-winning chef. He's a cookbook author, a podcast host, a humanitarian, a TV personality. He won Top Chef Masters and, and so much more. He's also just a really great human being. My relationship with him started a couple years ago when he spoke at the Welcome Conference in New York and has deepened over the past couple months as we've been working together with the Independent Restaurant Coalition. There's something remarkable about these moments of adversity and their propensity to just bring people closer together. I'm grateful for our relationship and I hope to keep it going. Rick Bayless, welcome to Weekly Specials. Thank you so much, Will. And I just have to echo what you said about 
the closeness that I feel with people, my colleagues in the restaurant business all across the United States, because it's all people that I know, but it's always a very casual knowing, being at the same events together and so forth. And during this time that we've all been fighting for the livelihood that we love so much, the restaurant business, I feel like that I have just made these incredible bonds with people across the United States that I respect so much, but spending so many hours on Zoom calls with everybody <laughs> brought us all closer together and creating those bonds that I think are, are going to be lifetime bonds. Yeah. To that point, I heard someone say recently, they overheard an older woman pray and the prayer was, I pray that the things we're being forced to do today are things that we choose to do tomorrow. The metaphorical tomorrow, obviously, but, and even referencing to relationship and when you're in a foxhole with people, the closeness that you feel, it's so easy to then drift away once things go back to normal. And yeah, it's really true. But I think this is going on for so long that the drifting is not happening fast at all. Just the bond that I have actually with our restaurant staff is much deeper because we've all gone through this together. We never did close up because we have one restaurant that is open. Well, is does a lot of carryout. So it was open from the very beginning to do the carryout. And then we developed carryout for another restaurant. And everybody from the other restaurant's you know, we're kind of a weird thing because we have four restaurants together spread out over a couple of buildings on yes. one corner in Chicago. So I will say that everybody from all the rest of the restaurants all pitched in to help. And because we we had to make everything incredibly safe for everyone. Boy, we were just, we were working really hard and checking each other out and making sure that everybody was following all of our protocols and all of that sort of stuff. And we feel like that in some cases that weathering this together has brought us so close together. Plus the fact that we started uh, this really food relief drive right away. I did it, started it just for our staff because I wanted to make sure that our staff that had mostly the ones that couldn't get on unemployment had food on the table for their families. We have, you know, most of the people that I work with are lifers in this business. And so they're not young people. And I will say that, that we reached out, we created this group in our restaurant that was just a social services group that contact every employee every week to make sure that they needed had what they needed if we needed to get them anything beyond the food boxes that we created but then that grew really fast and we ended up doing 600 of these food boxes twice a week and delivering them to restaurants all over the city for them to disperse into their neighborhoods oh my gosh um, for 12 weeks. And these boxes were really nice boxes. I, I say we're lucky in the restaurant business because most people know how to cook. And so yeah. <laughs> we give them a box of 35 pounds of real food and nothing was processed or anything like that. And they had fresh vegetables, they had rice and they had beans and macaroni and, and chicken and beef and all that sort of stuff in these boxes. And then they could they could live off of them for several days. So we did those tw twice a week. And how was that all funded? That's an extraordinary amount. You know, it, I will say that it sometimes when you just throw something out there, it kind of comes back to you. Yes. And one person said, I know somebody I think would fund this. They went to that person who's our anonymous donor and yes. the person literally in 12, 
hours came back to us and said, yep, I'll get you a check tomorrow. And we were only going to do, we thought this was only going to last for six weeks. And so at the end of the six weeks, we said, we've got this down. By the way, we were also able to hire 15 of our staff, the people that were really desperate for for money, we were able to hire them to come in twice a week. And so we were able to pay them $150 each day to come in and make these boxes so that they had something in their pockets to pay their rent or car or whatever. So, And then at the end of the six weeks, we went back to this anonymous donor and they said, sure, we'll fund another six weeks. So, and by, by that point, we were being able to open up again and do outdoor dining and stuff like that. So 12 weeks, we did that. That's extraordinary. I didn't, I didn't fully understand the scale of what you were doing. That's, that's remarkable. My goodness. Well, I mean, where, where's the company at now? So you've all start, you've started to reopen outdoor dining. There's 25% indoor in Chicago. And I will say that right now, if we could do 100% indoor, we would only be filling 25% of it. So that's kind of the amount of business that there is out there right now. We're only a five-day week operation. So on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays, they're pretty light. Fridays and Saturdays is where we make most of our our money for the week. We did this crazy little thing that Topolobampo, fine dining, high-end, you know, tasting menu and all that sort of stuff. We weren't planning on reopening it for a while because we didn't know. And one of our, our chefs said, what if we just put it in our private dining room, which is really special because it has a whole display kitchen in it and it's where our library is, 2,000 volumes are in there. So it's a really cool atmosphere atmosphere. And we went up there and organized tables six feet apart and figured out that we could see 14 people. <laughs> and um, <laughs> we reopened Topolo Bampo for 14 people. On Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we only do one seating, but on Friday and Saturday, we do two seatings. And that's sold out every night. I mean, granted, we're talking 14 people at a time. Yes. Bill, it's really super cool because we our relationship with our guests that way is so much more intimate. I mean, I like I go and greet every single guest. I mean, it's super easy. Yeah. So I get to greet every guest. I get to talk to people about things. And I will say that it's just remarkable how hungry people are for hospitality. And every night people say to me, thank you so much for doing this. It's our 20th wedding anniversary and we wanted to do something special. And you've just made this like really unique experience for us. And so, you know, they get to watch all the food being plated and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, we do really nice wine pairings. And so people can have, even though it's a really unusual time, people can have a very special experience. And so we're just happy that we've been able to do that. Well, you know, one of the things that I talked about this early in COVID that somehow this season feels to me like one marked by a rebirth of appreciation. And where where I'd always kind of been framing that is with the people that I love or my family or time creating space or my love for the work, all of that. it's amazing. Once something isn't there in front of you anymore, you stop taking it for granted and you start to appreciate it more than ever before. And for sure, that's happening with the world and its relationship to restaurants. Just like the the profound appreciation around having the ability to connect around the table. 
It's very fascinating to me that even I, in my relationship to my work, and I'm clearly a lifer. I grew up in the restaurant business, tried to get away from it, went to graduate school, thought I would have a life in academics. But before I finished my PhD dissertation, I was back opening a little catering business and teaching cooking classes. And then, of course, for 33 years now, we've had these places on Clark Street. And I've always said, you know, I could never really retire because within six months I'd have another place open. Um, <laughs> so much in my in my blood. But I never knew if that was really true or not. I just knew it was a fun thing to say. And I will tell you in the middle of this, it's true for me. I love hospitality. And you said something to me really, really early on in this, which I have never stopped thinking about, that it's all about our relationship to our guests and offering things to our guests. That's what we get off on. And I'm a back of the house person, but I've always made kitchens that were open to the dining room because I wanted from the line to be able to look out and watch the guests. And when we suddenly didn't have any guests, and we had to put food in a bag and staple it shut and put it on a shelf for somebody else to come and pick up. I lost what gives me the great satisfaction. And when you said that to me about how we are the people that make things happen for people, when I lost my connection with yes. people, I lost my way. And I got super sad because I thought, I'm not a to-go person. <laughs> I'm a hospitality person. I'm not just making food for people. I'm offering an experience to people, a connection. And I love that part of it. And I didn't know how much I loved it until I didn't have it. Yes. And I will say now, you say that we have this renewed gratitude for what we do and people have renewed gratitude for what we do as well. I'm just so, I feel so blessed to now have guests in our restaurants that I can stop and say, thank you to, and thank you for coming out. Thank you for being part of this. And thank you for supporting our staff and all of that without people. I don't really have a profession. I'm not just a cook. Yes. I'm a person that loves to share. No, I, dude, I love that. I really do. And I love that you have your open kitchens just so that you don't have, you don't like miss out on that part of the experience. Because I always, I actually always have thought about that, that as a dining room guy, the chefs like put so much work into the food. And then I'm the one that gets to go see the look on someone's face when I put it down in front of them. Now, conversely, if the chefs are taking too long to make the food, it's bad service and it's my fault. But <laughs> well, you get your payoff, dude. You get your payoff. Yeah, exactly. You get it both ways. So I feel like you've been kind of having a conversation. You're talking about experience and connection and relationship with the people we serve. And we also have that with the people we work alongside. And, and right. you've been talking about, I've read some of the stuff you've been putting out there, just about this idea that we have an opportunity to rebuild a better industry than the one we set out to rebuild in the first place. And, and that's a conversation that's being had around the systemic racism that exists and, and how we are as an industry trying to confront that and, and tackle it. But 
I think you were talking about it as it relates to that, but even even more broad as it pertains to respect and balance and breaking down the norms that we can kind of rebuild them. I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit. I will say that that piece that you're referring to, I actually wrote two years ago, long before all of this stuff started, because I, you know, we've gone through several trials and tribulations in our industry during the Me Too movement and all of that. And we saw some big names in our profession be taken down. And I felt like that what I can share is what I grew up with, because as I said, I grew up in the restaurant business and I grew up in the barbecue restaurant business. And in our restaurant growing up, everybody did everything. And I was not taught to do that. Mostly I was shown that you can create teams this way and that everybody works together and everybody supports one another. And what I didn't know until I got out of that restaurant and started to see the culture in other restaurants that we had a wonderful mix of different ages in our family's restaurant kitchen. And remember, I came from a restaurant that was in business for 37 years. Yeah, my gosh. During that 37 years, there was very little turnover in the staff. So these were people that I grew up with and everybody was accommodated as they got older. Different people helped with different aspects of the job that they couldn't do. People just wanted to keep the family intact, if you will. And what I really recognized after I left there was that if you have a kitchen culture that has a variety of people in it, different races, different ages, different sexes, that everything pretty much can balance itself out. Because let's just face it, you act a certain way when there's an older woman around. And you might not act that way if it was all 20-something guys on the line. And so when we opened Frontera back in 87, I really wanted to make sure that we had a mixture of ages and a mixture of sexes and a mixture of races. And uh, so we, I started that way. I wasn't known in Chicago. It wasn't like I could tap in to all of the, the cooks that were in the high-end restaurants or anything like that. And we were opening a mid, mid-scale restaurant anyway. And one of the things that I did, which you're hearing people talk about now, if you're looking for diversity in your kitchen, I went to a a six-month culinary training program that was half teaching English as a second language and half teaching basic culinary skills. And it was just for the Mexican immigrant population, basically, in Chicago. And I went there and I said, I would like to hire people from here. And I wanted some real diversity in that. And we started off right away with a very diverse kitchen culture. And I feel like that that is one of the reasons that we have always been able to keep this notion of anyone can do anything in the restaurant. Because from the very beginning, I started promoting from within. And I wasn't looking for people to come from someplace else and and maintain a certain level. Of course, this is a lot of work, but I was I'm going to I'm going to invest in these people 
who took a chance on me. <laughs> I'm going to invest in them and allow them to move up. And so we started, it's uh, now when you're talking about inclusion and diversity in kitchens, a lot of people are bringing these sorts of things up that if you really want that, then you have to have a clear path from say dishwasher to executive chef. You have to say that you could get there. And I will get, I guess that what I was reacting to was not somebody telling me that I needed inclusion and diversity in the kitchen, but belief in these people, that these people were really amazing people. And they hadn't had the great opportunity to go to a great cooking school or whatever, but I could teach them. If they worked alongside me, I could teach them and I could invest time and energy in those people and watch them flourish. And in fact, it's what what led us to last year start this program on the west side of Chicago called Impact Culinary Training, because I got really tired of the lack of diversity coming through our doors looking for jobs. And I was like, come on, there are so many diamonds in the rough on the west side of Chicago, and they just lack opportunity. And right away with our first graduating class, I said, you know, bingo. It's like we had so many people from that first class just blossom. They just needed, number one, to have some basic training so that they knew how to operate in a professional kitchen. And number two, somebody had to believe in them and to say, you know, come into my kitchen for four weeks. We offer a four-week internship. It's more like a mentorship with a really good chef in Chicago. And that chef can really spend that four weeks mentoring that student. And if they have a space at the end for that, that person, then they they can stay on, or we as the, the Impact Culinary will help them to find a job. But we have had so many amazing, great things come from that. But you know, the most interesting thing to me is that it's two ways. I talked about it just now from the perspective of the student getting opportunity, training and opportunity. But from the flip side of it, we ask all of the mentoring chefs to come and teach a class with these students at some point during their eight-week training program that we're putting them through. And the chefs are coming out of there saying, wow, that changed my life. (laughs) I got to get to know these students and I got to know what the reality of their lives are. I got to work with one of these students for four weeks in my in my kitchen. So, man, my perspective is just broadened. I understand now how I can communicate and how I can actually offer a great kitchen environment that's respectful of the fact that you don't have to be a, a white guy with a CIA degree and that, that for me to know who you are, but I can actually help and, op- and offer opportunity to some of these students. But I guess I formalized that when we started the Impact Culinary Training. But it's just what I believe. And, you know, one of the reasons, and I've thought about this a lot, is when you think about barbecue, and um, I know that none of our listeners will know what Oklahoma barbecue is, and they should. Okay, (laughs) If you're talking about barbecue, it's not like anything else. It's halfway between Kansas City and Texas. So it's got certain elements that are common in Kansas City barbecue and certain that are common in in Texas barbecue, but it's its own 
thing, and we're super proud of it because it is the best barbecue, of course, in the United States. Of course, that's what you <laughs> But I will say that when the fellow that was the pit master, which, you know, that is the role in a barbecue restaurant. Yes. But my father had passed away when I was in my early 20s. My mother had taken over the restaurant and she just jumped in there. She's one of those people that could just jump in and do anything. She was that, that she had that as her personality. But she took it over and in some ways made the restaurant flourish even more than what my father had. And the when the pitmaster who had been there for, I'm going to say about 30 years. <laughs> no, I would say 25 years. And he retired. He got to age 65 and he retired. And my mother was thinking about what she would do for a pitmaster. And this woman who had been working with us for about I'm going to say six years at that point or whatever, who was the daughter of somebody else that worked with us. She said, I can do that job. And my mother said, yeah, I bet you can do that job. So you've probably never heard of a female pitmaster, but that we're talking back in the 70s, 60s, uh, that this woman was put in there and until and my mother retired and sold the restaurant after the, at the end of the 37 years, this woman was the pit master for like the last decade of the existence of that restaurant. And your mom it, just led from a foundation of just trusting that she could step it up and, and make it happen. And and in commitment, these people that worked with us, like I'll say they were very much like family because we had invested in them. We never let any of them fall. One of the things that's kind of weird, but I, I grew up in a family where if one of our people working in the restaurant business, especially like in a barbecue restaurant, they're basically living hand to mouth. And so my mother would always lend money. Like if you needed money to do to get out of a, a scrape or if you had a car repair that needed to be done or whatever, my mother would always lend money to people so that she could take care of them. And then in like turn, they would take care of her also because they knew that they had a, a very solid foundation. And I'm just thinking about that today. If there was a, a woman who was a pit master for a decade in a well-known barbecue restaurant in a town, that would be all over the press. But back in those days, it just, nobody even talked about it or thought about it. But my mother and my father to a certain degree, but my mother, I think she she gave me that kind of education that said, just take care of people. Just respect people, thank people. That was the other thing. She was always really big about every day, thanking everybody in the restaurant and giving them opportunities. So I guess I have modeled my life after that. In, yes. in our restaurant. No, I didn't do it subconsciously. I just did it because that's what I was taught. That's how so you were I, raised. It was the way I was raised. And now I can sort of articulate it because we're talking about all of these topics. But I will say that so much of it had to do with the fact that we had numerous generations working together. Everybody helped and supported everybody else. And the, we had men and women working side by side so that we didn't sort of get it off in one direction or another and in terms of culture. And I think that that, 
that to me was the perfect education for me and what I've tried to emulate. And I think that we could get away from some of the negative aspects of what people think of as restaurant culture if we would all adopt that model or work toward that model. And again, I will say that I also worked growing up with a lot of different or several different races. In our town in Oklahoma City, there's a lot of Native Americans and a lot of Mexicans. And so we always had Native Americans and Mexicans working together. And because I was always super interested in culture, my graduate work is all in anthropology and linguistics. And I was always very, very interested in in culture. I loved hanging out with all these people and they would make food from their heritage and bring it into work and we would all celebrate that stuff and you guys had good family meals back then <laughs> actually we ate barbecue mostly honestly locations <laughs> people would bring in all kinds of stuff it's really funny that's the other thing i emulated in our restaurant is that and we can do this because we have a lot of different menus around here, but all of our staff, we don't make a separate family meal. We all eat the same food that our customers eat. So there is a menu you can choose from for a free meal and you can have it then whenever it fits into your your schedule in the day. You just order it and it's made for you just like you're a regular customer. Oh my and gosh. The reason that I do that is because that's what my family did in the restaurant I grew up in. So that when somebody asked us, you know, what's what's really good today is to say, well, what I had for lunch was this. Yes. <laughs> and it's really good. And it's, you know, the 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 smoked beef is particularly good today. And I saw that and that's what I had for lunch. So I remember I remember coming up one of my first jobs, the manager got to have his shift meal was ordering off the menu. And one time I had like a two or three week stretch where I was just crushing it. Whatever I was doing, he was very impressed by me. And he invited me to have his shift meal with him. And so I got to order off the menu. Uh And I remember how special that made me feel. And so the idea that you do that for your team every day is extraordinary. Well, and and they they then can, they get deeper into our flavors. If you eat something every day, then you really, you get the nuances of it. And I still remember all the stuff that I ate in my family's restaurant growing up. Our menus here change all the time. So there's new stuff coming on the menu. But my family's restaurant, the barbecue restaurant, we didn't change all that much. And so it was really, you really got to know that food well. And some people would think that that was a kind of awful thing to have to eat the same thing every day. But I am a person that loves it. And I loved being able to go sort of deep into those flavors. And I guess that's one of the things that is really is sort of the hallmark of my career as a chef. Chef is that I'm constantly encouraging all of our chefs to go back to the same thing. Go back to that dish. Let's do it again. Let's make it better. Let's look at it from, if we did it like a year ago, let's bring it out again and let's get to know it again. And let's really go deeper this time into it. And so I'm always encouraging our chefs to when they coming up with new menu ideas to actually don't try to be too creative. Sometimes go back to that same thing. And uh, one of our chefs um, always brings this this thing up. He was trying to be super creative and do a take on a really classic Mexican dish. And he made it. And for me, it was completely disjointed. It, It lost all the integrity of the original dish. So I went to the shelf of our library 
And I took off one of the oldest books that I had there, a book that was printed uh, back in the 20s in Mexico. And it had the classic recipe for this dish that he was trying to make. And I said, okay, so what I want you to do is I want you to follow this recipe. Just follow it exactly. Just every single step of it. And then I want you to make that and let's taste it next to yours. <laughs> and he said that when he got it done, that was the whole lesson. And he said it was the best lesson of his life, that something that had been made for generations and generations and generations had a certain balance and depth to it that he needed to get to know first before yeah. he made any changes to it. And I think that that's one of the things that I really love about the restaurant business is going to the dishes over and over again. Well, I mean, it's like any, any craft, you need to learn the rules before you can start breaking them. Right. Because, and, and, but what you just said is actually a really good segue because you're saying going back to the things you've already been doing to figure out how you can do them better. I love that. And I think that's, by the way, anyone that's been successful over a long stretch of time, I think has that in common, right? Like you don't need to wildly reinvent yourself all the time, but you do need to constantly check back in on the things you've been doing and seeing if there's a way to do them just marginally better. And so as it pertains to everything we've just been talking about with the culture and the kitchen and the buildup of the team and all of this, we're on this hiatus and perhaps your restaurants have never had a complete hiatus, but Emotionally, this has been a hiatus, which gives us space to think and reflect and all of that. And when you think about what you want your company to look like in a year as compared to it did in February, have you thought about aspirations that you want to focus on on achieving? Well, we've been sort of wrestling with all of the equity and pay, and we had the opportunity to open up with a new way of thinking about paying staff. And we came up with something that's working so far. I will say this is not a finished program or anything. This is just, we, we're literally taking it one day at a time and seeing if it fits and if it works. But we decided that we were going to pay. We had no idea if we were going to have customers when we opened up. And we, yes. didn't, we didn't like the tipping model because the tipping model said we were going to be paying $6.40 an hour to these servers to come back. And if no one comes, that's all you make. Yes. And so we decided instead to go to paying all of our service staff $18 an hour to come back. And then we put a 20% service charge on the checks and we were taking a risk and the servers were taking a risk. We put a line on there. If people want to leave an additional gratuity, that would go all to all of our service staff to bring them up to something that's closer to what they were making before. But we were guaranteeing them something. And then that's where we are right now. And they're doing fine. They're probably not making quite what they were making before, but it's within a close proximity of that. And so... It gave us the opportunity as we build our business back, and it will be a long building back, but as we build yes. our business back, 
that 20% that's on there, because we're in the state of Illinois and not in New York, can be divided up however we want. It can go to pay back yes. the staff in front of the house staff and all of that sort of stuff. Right now, that 20% is not quite covering the $18 an hour we're paying our front house staff. But at least it's doing something. And we are feeling really positive about having made a step in a direction that we think is going to eventually be, is eventually going to allow us to spend more on our backhouse staff, which is what we really need to do right now. We are in one of those cities that is going toward $15 as the base pay. We're not there yet, but we will be there in 2021. And I'm happy about that because we have to build our models to be able to accommodate that as a basic living wage. We People can't live on less than that, and we all know that. And so I feel like that in terms of wage equity, we are making some strides in the right direction. It is a work in progress, I will say, and I, but I'm happy to be on that road. Oh, that's um, amazing. I mean, I think one of the, the big things, honestly, when, when we're talking about the additional unemployment benefits right now, and how people are making more in unemployment than they were in the restaurants. And there's frustration around our inability to rehire people, but it's hard not to also just acknowledge what that says. But but then at the same time, you know, there's, I think, a consensus around fixing that, but it's coming at the exact time that restaurants are just struggling to stay open another month. And so the fact that you're taking a step during this time is, is pretty inspiring. We thought we would never have this opportunity again to start from scratch, basically hiring people who hadn't been working for a while, hiring them back and saying, okay, this is the way we're going to be working now. And there was a tiny bit of grumbling, but when they realized that we were actually helping them as well and securing something for them, like we are very weather dependent on all of our patios. And the other night, we on one of our patios, we had rain starting at 5.30 and we did... 12 people that night, (laughs) 12 people, but we still paid everybody the $18 an hour. And so I think in that situation, they said, oh, okay, this really, this really helped me. That was a nice little security blanket for me to be able to say that they're going to pay that. So we're still not in the black. We're still actually quite a ways from the black. We did get a PPP loan. And so during the time of the PPP loan, the staff that was working, which was a pretty small staff, we had income coming in and we didn't have expenditures for the labor for that. And then we didn't have expenditures surely for our rent because that was paid by the PPP loan. So we socked away some money during that time. So we have that money in the bank and we are running into deficit every week. I know a lot of people think that we should, oh, we've got people on our patio and we're doing takeout. We should be able to be have some equilibrium, but our fixed costs and especially yeah. in the, the neighborhood that we work in here in Chicago, fixed costs are really high. And so we have still not negotiated everything about our rent with our landlord. That's still ongoing back and forth, but we're doing what we can to try to hit a break even, but we're still a ways from that break even. So I will say we're not even close to being out of the woods. And I would guess that that describes an awful lot of restaurants in, in right now in the United States. A good friend of mine just sent me a note this morning and said, today's their last day. They're, they're done. That they're completely out of money. 
They don't see that it's going to get better fast enough for them to want to take out more loans and that sort of thing. And I think that's kind of where a lot of people are right now. We're very thankful we have some money in the bank now to cover the deficits that we're experiencing right now. But, you know, when that money runs out, we're going to be in that same position because it's like, how much can we keep taking on? Well, and I think it's the, it's, it's a combination of when your financial bank account runs dry and when your emotional bank account runs dry, when it's just restaurants are awesome and glamorous, we have great lives, but it's not as if it's easy. And, you know, like it was never easy. And then this and, and so no, maybe, I, that, yeah, that, like I, when you it. realize what a small profit margin we have to run on and that that profit margin can go away in a blink of an eye and then you can all of a sudden be in the red. That's really hard for a lot of people to to recognize or to accept because they say, well, I could make this dish for cheaper at my house. Well, yeah, they could make that dish cheaper at their house, but who's going to serve it to them and who's going to clean the dishes and who's going to, you know, when you look at how much labor, what what an incredibly labor intensive profession that we're in, it's, it's really, it's clear that it couldn't be much of a profit margin. And I would like to say, and I had dreams of this at the beginning of this whole COVID shutdown, that when we came out of this, we would be able to charge for our food what it's really worth so that we could have a sustain, a financially sustainable model. But we're pretty deep into this and I'm not seeing that happen anywhere. I don't see yeah. any of my the restaurants in my neighborhood here. Nobody has raised a price. Nobody has done anything. Um, some people have put the surcharge on like we have or some people have put on a small 3% surcharge just to cover the COVID related stuff. I haven't seen that we're going to be able to charge what we really need to charge for economic sustainability. Okay. So here's my last question then, because we've just spent the last five or so minutes talking about how dire things are, but at the same time, I look at you and I see someone that's hopeful and optimistic and, and excited and, and energized. And so And this is something I ask a lot of people right now, because I think it's super important to actually acknowledge what it is that's giving you hope right now. What are the things that are, what is it out there that's bringing all of those positive emotions onto your face right now? Two things. One is the interaction with our guests. And I like that just energizes me to no extent. I mean, it's the, we're, we are, we have this fabulous opportunity to create beauty for people and have them respond to us. And I, that is the thing that is energizing me more than anything. It's just that we're, I'm back in the hospitality business right now. And I realize how important that is to our everyday lives. And I think when people used to not go out for uh, meals as often as they do now, when I was a kid, we just didn't go out hardly at all. But now people are used to going out a lot. And I think they realize, I'm hoping that they're realizing just how important that sense of hospitality is to their well-being. If they've been cooking by themselves or with their families for an extended period, They know how wonderful it is to have somebody else share food with them and share the welcome 
with them. Yes. So I think that that is one thing that's giving me hope. The, the second thing that's giving me hope is that we have had to make, bring our once really big world down to a small microcosm of what it used to be. So I'm spending a whole lot more time actually cooking with the cooks, with the chefs. I'm harvesting, we have a, a production garden behind our house and I'm harvesting all of the edible flowers every morning and bringing them in and talking to the cooks about what they're gonna do with them today and all that sort of stuff. And to me, that's what I always love about this, my world. But as we grew and got bigger, of course, I got a bit more distant from it. I didn't ever get away from it, but I got a little more distant from it. And so now being able to go back and see all of our sous chefs become line cooks again, our chef de cuisine become the expediting chef that has to jump on the line and get everything out and organize everybody to get the to-go orders out and all that sort of stuff. When I see that, and they're all jazzed up because they're getting a chance to get more involved in the nitty gritty of taking care of our guests. I think all of it sort of is circling around the thing that we all love to do the most and sometimes don't get to do enough is simply to take care of guests. Yeah. And that's really energizing me a lot right now. And like I said, if if this doesn't pan out for us and we can't keep this place going, I'll figure out something else to do where I can have that same interaction with people in the future. Because not only is it in my blood, it's in my soul. It's like what I love to do. And I know for a lot of people listening that they may not understand that whole that service thing because it sort of sounds like servitude and it's not, it's just, you're not supposed to aspire to it. But man, I, those of us that are in this industry and love it, we just love seeing people be happy. And if we can yeah. contribute to that happiness, that's our reward. That's a, exactly. It's it's the gift that we are giving is the gift that we get. Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe if this whole thing doesn't work out, it's time for the world to experience Oklahoma barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in and hope you'll join us again next week here on Weekly Specials. This show is produced by the Welcome Conference team, including Aaron Ginsberg, Anthony Rudolph, Sandra DiCapua, and Brian Canlis. And our music is courtesy of Aaron Raytier. Special thanks to our creative collaborators at Resi. And thank you to our longtime partners at American Express and Sam Pellegrino for their unwavering support. During a time when we're not able to come together in person, it's that support that allows us to connect with you here. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about the Welcome Conference, visit welcomeconference.org or find us on Instagram at Welcome Conference. It's the weekly specials. Doo, doo, doodle, doo. Weekly specials. Good news coming at you. The weekly specials. Doo, doo, doodle, doo, doo, doo. Weekly specials. Good news coming at you.